Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 276, How is the Trinity Central to the Gospel? Or, How the Gospel Coalition Prioritizes Speculation Over Scripture. In this episode of the Trinity's podcast, I'm going to interact mostly with a short video produced by the Gospel Coalition entitled, How is the Trinity Central to the Gospel? There are three people talking here. The first is Ligon Duncan. He's Chancellor of Reformed Theological Seminary. Second is Scott Swain, President and Professor of Systematic Theology at Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando. And then there's Gavin Ortland, Research Fellow at the Carl Henry Center for Theological Understanding at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Again, the title of the video is, How is the Trinity Central to the Gospel? I think what they're really asking is why we should think that the doctrine of the Trinity, as expounded in the ancient creeds, assuming that is one doctrine, why is that doctrine essential to the gospel, so that if you haven't preached the Trinity, you haven't really preached the gospel, and also why should we think that someone cannot be saved if they deny this doctrine? At least I thought that's what they were going to ask. They don't really answer either question. What they do say is interesting, and I think it tells you something about the mindset concerning the Trinity in the Theological Academy these days. Well, we're here to talk about the Trinity and the Gospel and how they relate so this to each is other. Portland talking. And is the Trinity central to the Gospel? There's some things we believe that may be important, but they're not central to the gospel. Indeed. The exact details leading up to the second coming of Christ, for example, that's a common area where Christians can disagree on that, and the gospel is not at stake in that. Mm -hmm. But if someone said to us, you know, I deny the Trinity, you affirm the Trinity, but we still have the gospel, we would say, no, the Trinity is a first-rank doctrine. It's of central importance to the gospel. First rank doctrine. I'm not really familiar with this scheme of ranking doctrines in the first, second, third, fourth ranks. I guess what he's saying is that surely this is essential. But hang on a second, friend. I thought we were Protestants here. The Gospel Coalition is a Reformed entity. These are academics at Reformed institutions. So we're Protestants, right? So how can you have a central doctrine that isn't ever taught anywhere in the New Testament. How can you have a central and essential doctrine that's not taught in any of the early creeds? For instance, the baptismal creeds of the 100s, the short statements called the rule of faith in authors like Irenaeus and Origen. There's no doctrine of a tripersonal God there. There's no doctrine of three persons in one divine essence. The first appearance of this doctrine, in my view, and I talk about this in my book, What is the Trinity?, is in the Creed of 381, where this doctrine of three co-equal divine persons and one God still isn't explicit, but I think it's implicit and assumed in that 381 Creed, the Creed from the Council at Constantinople. But are we Protestants or not? Why would we think that we're bound by the decisions of these ancient bishops? Do we believe in the authority of bishops? I assume not. 
And getting from the Bible to this type of creedal-sounding Trinity doctrine is actually really difficult, but they're not going to try to make that argument here. They don't feel the need. What is it that makes it a first-rank doctrine? Why is it central to the gospel? It's somewhat like asking the question, is who your wife is central to your marriage? (laughs) If who our God is is not central to who we are going to commune with forever, I don't know a central question. Mm. So the, the question of, you know, is the Trinity central to the gospel is kind of like asking, is God central to the gospel? Mm. Because our treasure is in God if we trust in Christ. So who is that God in whom our treasure is? And so the Trinity is, is about helping us to know in greater detail, as God has disclosed himself to us, us in scripture who he is in whom our soul delights well yes surely who god is has got to be central and important when it comes to christian belief and teaching and proclamation but of course he's just assuming here that the one god of the new testament is the trinity the problem with that is the new testament not only says that there is one god but it tells us who that one god is and it's the father john 17 1 through 3 1 Corinthians 8, 4 through 6, 1 Timothy 2, 5. Whenever the Bible talks about the only God or the one God or the Almighty, that's the Father. That's what we call a Unitarian theology, not a Trinitarian theology. According to a Trinitarian theology, it's the Father, Son, and Spirit together, which are the one God, or who is the one God. Now, this phrase, who God is, I think is ambiguous. You could be asking which being or which character in the story we're talking about, or who God is could mean like what sort of being we're talking about. If you want to know who God is in the New Testament, as opposed to later Catholic theologies, who God is in the sense of which being, which character in the narrative, it's the Father. Yahweh in the Old Testament turns out to be our Father in heaven in the New Testament. If you ask what sort of being this one God is, well, the one God is everything that the Jewish scriptures say. The one God is called the Father, but also, according to the New Testament, you can look at his spitting image. You can look at Jesus and tell how God is, because the Father and Son are alike. That's why Jesus says that he who has seen me has seen the Father in John 14, 9. One final point about that, when you talk about who God is, whether you're asking which personal being or how this one God is, it seems like you're assuming that God is a single self. And indeed, this is what many Trinitarians think. Although they don't get into the fine points of what the classical language about the Trinity means and how it's to be interpreted here. Next, Ortland chimes in with some deep thoughts from Dr. Fred Sanders, who listeners to this podcast will be familiar with. Well, maybe we can get specific with that and flesh out how do the Trinity and the gospel really relate to each other. I'm holding a copy of Fred Sanders' book, The Deep Things of God, and in the introduction he says, the Trinity and the gospel are not just bundled together so that you can't have one without the other. They are internally configured toward each other. Oof. Man, how did the Trinity and the gospel relate to one another? Notice that in that question, there are two abstract nouns, the Trinity, whatever that means, whatever claims that might involve, and the gospel, 
whatever that means, whatever claims that might involve, how do those relate to one another? A very abstract question. And the deep answer is that they're internally configured towards each other. It makes me sad that this sort of abstract jibber-jab can pass for a deep insight. But Orland continues. One of the things he's saying is you don't just use the Trinity defensively to protect the gospel, but you also use the Trinity positively to expound the gospel. We want to show how the Trinity is at work in the various material points of the gospel. So one example would be the doctrine of the atonement. If you become a Unitarian, you have to go back to Jesus hanging on the cross and sort of reconstrue what is happening there? Because you don't have a personal distinction between the Father and the Son yeah. to affect atonement. Wow. That's kind of a startling error there. Ortland seems to think that the way one would be a Unitarian would be to think that the Father and Son are the same person. So he's thinking that a Unitarian theology is a oneness theology. I could see why you'd say that, because both of those theologies would say that God is multipersonal. But the definition of a Unitarian Christian theology is that the Father and the Father alone is the one true God. The oneness person thinks that the Father's the one true God and the Son's the one true God and the Spirit's the one true God. They're all the one true God. Their view is very similar to what I call a oneself Trinitarian theology, what some people would call a type of modalism. You could say non-Sabellian modalism. But yeah, most of the people who call themselves Unitarian Christians don't have a problem with atonement if that problem is thinking that the Father and Son are the same person. No, there's the Father who thought up this plan, and then there's the Son who voluntarily goes along with it and serves as a sin offering. And it's false to say that the Father died, but in our view it's also false to say that God died which is a huge advantage, by the way, because we don't have to explain how it could possibly make sense for an essentially immortal being to die. In our view, back then, Jesus was mortal, and so he succumbed to death. We think now he's been raised to immortality, much like you and I, who are believers, will be raised to immortality someday in the future. But if God is by his very nature immortal, he couldn't die. If you want to see me explore this serious difficulty for two natures theories about Jesus, check out podcast 145 entitled, Tis Mystery All, The Immortal Dies. Okay, so they continue to discuss atonement here. What else can we say about that, just to flesh this out, the connection points between the Trinity and the Gospel? Yeah. Stay with the atonement. You can't understand the this love Scott Swain. that God displays in the cross apart from the Trinity. You think of texts like John 3.16, you think of Romans 8, that really the, their understanding of the cross is built on the analogy where Abraham was willing to not withhold Isaac to demonstrate his love for God. The father has not withheld his only begotten son to offer him as a sacrifice for sin. So without the Trinity, you can't understand the love of God in giving a son on the cross. That is so patently wrong. Where to start? It is definitely true that a oneness theologian, who is not a Trinitarian, can't obviously make sense of God giving his son, right, not himself, but giving someone else as a sin sacrifice. God loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son, right? 
And then, for instance, in Romans 5, it's not God who goes to the cross. It's we know how much God loves us because while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So there's someone other than God who dies. That's right. But to say that you have to believe in the Trinity to have God, the Father, giving his Son, or that's someone else, you don't have to have the Trinity. You might be, for instance, an ancient subordinationist like Justin Martyr. You might think that the Son is a second and lesser, in some sense, divine being. You might even think, like today's biblical Unitarians, that the Messiah is a man, a miraculously conceived man, chosen by God for this special role. You obviously don't need the Holy Spirit for there to be a God who gives his Son to die on the cross, much less do you need a triune God. So, there is an objection here. It's to views on which the Father and Son are the same self. Those would be oneness Pentecostal theologies, yes, but they would also be one-self Trinitarians, who think that there's really just one person, one self, between the Father and Son. So then you get God himself dying for us, which is just not what the New Testament says. When the Trinity's podcast returns, does the Trinity unnecessarily complicate the gospel? And are non-Trinitarian theologies easily refuted by a simple philosophical argument? connection with that, it, oftentimes the Trinity is presented as something that complicates our Christian sharing of the gospel because many non-Christians don't understand the Trinity and either articulate it as tritheism or modalism as some form. So for instance, when we're in, having conversation with intelligent Muslim friends who believe that the Christian doctrine of the Trinity is idolatry, they understand it as a form of tritheism. Well, is that a liability for us when we're having conversation with our Muslim neighbors? I would say no, because the glory of the Christian God is because he is love, triune. He did not require anything outside of himself in the created world mm. eternally to be love. Because right. as Richard of St. Victor said many, many hundreds of years ago, the Father is loving the Son, the Son is loving the Spirit, the Spirit the Father. Eternally, there is, a, there is an outgoing of love in the intra-Trinitarian life of God that does not require a created order for that expression. And therefore, God is not dependent upon the created order in order to express His love. Therefore, creation itself is the overflowing of God's love. But if you have a Unitarianism that says God is only one and is absolutely one, He is incapable of expressing any of His attributes, much, much less his love without being dependent upon an external creation. So actually, the doctrine of the Trinity simplifies your apologetics and it highlights the superiority of the one true God. The Trinity doesn't look at creation and kind of quote Jerry Maguire, you complete me. Right. <laughs> right, because the Trinity That's is complete exactly right. in and of himself. Uh. Yeah. Right, so we mentioned 
tritheism, but that's not worth going into. Just pass that by immediately. Okay, well, second biggest religion in the world's not buying that. But anyway, I guess that's another discussion. Simplifying our apologetic. Wow, how is this supposed to work now? They've said that a unipersonal God, a God who's not a trinity, must be dependent upon creation to express his love. Well, why would God have to express his love? Who cares if, apart from creation, God wouldn't be loving someone else? Would this make God imperfect somehow? Why would anybody think that? Dr. Swain, toward the end, said there that the Trinity doesn't have to say to creation, you complete me. So the idea is that if God is just a single person, then he'll be incomplete unless he creates. What does that even mean? Does it mean that he's lonely? I don't see why God would necessarily be lonely just because he was alone. Why would you think that a perfect God is emotionally needy? I don't know. Is the idea supposed to be that God is less than happy, like less than well-off? Now, I've refuted this argument in a number of Trinity's podcasts before. I'll put the episode links on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. I've refuted this sort of argument in a recent published paper. I've refuted this argument in a published peer-reviewed book chapter. Again, I'll put the links up there for you. And we'll go deeper into this in just a minute, but let me just make a few basic points about what's going on here. Is there an argument anywhere in Scripture that God, to be perfect, must be multipersonal? I don't think so. Is that in the so-called ecumenical creeds, which are officially recognized, say, by Reformed churches, Catholic churches, Orthodox churches, etc.? No, it's not in there. Wow. So the source they cite is this medieval Catholic philosopher named Richard of St. Victor, who died in 1173 AD. Was this a profound truth about the triune God that was only discovered in the 12th century? Should one accept this type of speculative argument? I don't see why. There seems to be an assertion here that to be something, maybe to be perfect in some way, God has to be multipersonal, but we've been given no reason to accept that. It's been kind of suggested that God will be needy, maybe, lonely, before he creates, if he's not already a company somehow in himself. What? Why would you think that a being who's all-powerful, all-good, all-knowing, who exists independently of anything else and is perfect, why would you think a God like that would be sitting around, you know, pining for a friend, basically? A human being, as an ancient philosopher said, famously, is a social animal. Humans don't thrive individually. But you wouldn't want to project that need for peers onto God, right? This is not Bible. This is not Bible-based theology. We're in the realm of philosophy here. And honestly, this is not philosophy well done. We're not dealing with a well-constructed argument here. 
If you want to see some well-constructed arguments for these sorts of conclusions, check out the papers that I've linked on the blog post for this episode, or search the Trinity's blog for Richard Swinburne or Stephen T. Davis. But these gentlemen are not even trying. They're just kind of smugly suggesting that the Trinity is perfect and any other god is going to be somehow inadequate in comparison. It's not even clear quite how the argument would go. I'm just kind of guessing at the details. Are we supposed to just take their word for it? Or are we supposed to just accept this on the authority of Richard of St. Victor? Surely not. We don't have scripture here. We don't have reason. We don't have anything except people in quasi-authoritative positions telling us something. What kind of Protestantism is this? Now, I went looking in the Gospel Coalition videos for some clarification about this, and I found one entitled, Only the Triune God is Love. And it's a discussion between three people, but right now I'm just going to quote the famous pastor and writer Tim Keller, and he's going to give his own little take on this argument that God would have to be a trinity, otherwise he would be mm, something bad. Here's the Tim Keller version. One of the more powerful arguments I have in talking to secular people about the Trinity, I mean, the average secular person says, hey, Islam, Judaism, okay, maybe, but the Trinity, it just doesn't make any sense. And Augustine's great point is you couldn't really say God is love except about a triune God. Because if you have an impersonal God, obviously, then there's, if you have an Eastern view of God as impersonal, that's, it's, Obviously, that kind of God is not a God of love. Uh, but even a unipersonal God wouldn't be loving until that God created some other beings. You need another being to have love, which means power came before love. That is, a unipersonal God, using his power, creates a race of beings, and now he has their love and he loves them. So love comes in later, power is before love. And Augustine says, which of course figures, that figures with paganism. The whole idea that basically uh, what life's really about is power. Uh, no, if God is tri-personal, then he was love and community from all eternity. Of course, as Edward says, it's out of that love he decided to create a race of beings to share that love and that glory. So love comes first, and it's the basis for power, which has enormous implications for, for what's actually important in human life. So Augustine is saying, if you really think love is the meaning of the universe, and if you really think love is, is at the heart of the universe, you have to believe in a triune God. If you don't believe in a triune God, love is peripheral, comes along later. I found that as an apologetic argument. I'm saying, look, I'm not proving that God exists, but if you think love's important, if you think it's more important, relationships is more important than accruing wealth and power, this is the kind of God that gives you a basis for believing that and actually gives you a basis for your intuitions. So I've seen the Trinity good in, uh, in also in apologetics. Oof. Okay. So this is an argument that God isn't going to be perfect in love unless he's multipersonal. Keller says that God wouldn't be loving until he created if God were just one person or one self. Well, hang on a second. We talk about being loving. That can mean having loving character or it could mean performing the action of loving someone. Now, if we're talking about having perfectly loving character, yes, a quote unipersonal God could be perfect in that way, even when that character trait isn't manifesting. God before creation could just be 
perfect in love, in the sense of having perfectly loving character. Now, if you say, well, I didn't mean perfectly loving character, I'm saying that a perfect God would have to be performing the action of loving. Well, okay, maybe. But look, God is intrinsically worthy of love, right? Do you think God loves himself? Surely a perfect being who knows everything would know his own value and would therefore value himself. Okay, so there's, there's your action of love apart from creation with no dependence on creation. Now what some philosophers will do, okay, but that doesn't count. I meant like the best kind of love, right? Keller doesn't go this far, but other more serious arguers will say, oh, I meant love of another. Self-love doesn't count. Because other love, love of someone else, is better. Well, maybe it's better, but why would a perfect being have to be loving someone else? I have no idea. Look, a perfect being is going to have lots of unrealized potentialities. Here's a great thing. Presiding over a beautiful world full of plants and animals and blue skies and lovely oceans and coral reefs, volcanoes. Presiding over that is a really wonderful thing. Being in charge of that is a great thing, I would think, in a sense, a huge blessing. But God doesn't have to create because of that, right? And it wouldn't be any imperfection in God if he didn't bring that about, right? So if God isn't loving someone else, why would that be any kind of deficiency? Why would that make God less than perfect? Why would it make God less than perfectly loving? It looks like he still could be perfectly loving in the sense that being perfectly loving expresses a character trait. Another question nearby is, okay, so suppose God is multipersonal. If God has another person within him to love, does that count as loving another or is that just loving himself? Well, it depends, I think. If you're a one-selfer, if you think the persons so-called of the Trinity really aren't selves, but you think they're like modes or personalities or something less than personal beings, if you're a one-self Trinitarian, which is probably the majority view among theologians nowadays, then you know the Father loving the Son is just going to be God loving himself. And that isn't love of another. Okay, but that's the same thing that a, quote, unipersonal God could do independently of a creation. So that wouldn't show us any respect in which a unipersonal God would be imperfect and a tripersonal God or a multipersonal God would be perfect. Now, if you're a three-self Trinitarian, if you think those are individually three beings, you can count three things there, and that they can really relate as self-to-self and interpersonal relationships, you're probably what some theologians call a social Trinitarian. I call them three-self Trinitarians. So yeah, if that's what the Trinity is, then there can be interpersonal love, even if there's no creation. But why does there have to be interpersonal love independently of creation? There's no obvious reason, right? It looks like a perfect God could exist and not yet enjoy that blessing of love of another because he hasn't made any others to love yet. Now, about this power comes before love... This sounds kind of like uh, this sounds kind of like a word salad to me, honestly. It's kind of like free association. I can scrape around and try to find an argument. So 
Keller thinks it's objectionable if God has to exercise his power to create before he can actually love someone else. Well, what would follow from that? It wouldn't follow that power is more important than love or something like that. You couldn't deduce any pagan value scheme where life is really just about power or something. Is he talking about logical or ontological priority among the divine attributes, so that in some sense omnipotence would be prior to omnibenevolence, or divine power would in some sense come before love? Why would that be a bad thing? I don't know. If you say God is love and community from all eternity, okay, now we're back wondering about tritheism, because if you have really interpersonal relationships here between three friends, right? The eternal dance of love, etc. If it's literally a community, that doesn't look like monotheism. It looks like tritheism. One final point, Keller doesn't appeal to Richard of St. Victor from the High Middle Ages. He appeals to Augustine, writing in the late 300s and early 400s. And he says, yeah, it's Augustine who says all of this. Well, I hate to tell you, but I've looked high and low for this passage as referenced by Keller and other people, more serious scholars like Richard Swinburne, and I think I know the passage he has in mind, and it totally doesn't say what he says. In fact, I'll just quote that passage on the blog post for this episode, and you can read it. It's just one little paragraph, and you can see if it's really anything like what he's saying. Okay, so this line of thought's not in the Bible. It's not in the early creeds. It's not in the, quote, classic ecumenical creeds. It's not in the early Middle Ages. It is in the high Middle Ages. And as far as I know, it's not in any of the famous early modern Protestant creeds. I don't think it was popular most of the time after the high Middle Ages. Like, I don't recall seeing Trinitarians in the 16, 17, 1800s arguing this way, that God would be imperfect somehow unless God were multipersonal. It has been revived towards the end of the 20th century by people like Richard Swinburne, but this is just really a half-hearted gesture in the direction of an argument. It's like a hamburger that's almost all bun and almost no beef. It certainly is a big bun. It's a very big bun. Big fluffy bun. It's a very big fluffy bun. Where's the beef? Hey, where's the beef? I don't think there's anybody back there. All right. But maybe Keller was just speaking off the cuff there. So I looked for another video trying to find him expounding this argument, and I was rewarded with one entitled Q&A, How Can Christianity Be Both Monotheistic and Trinitarian? Okay, good question. Here again is Pastor Keller. How does Trinity, how's it monotheistic? Well, that's the question. Uh, I can just say it. Christianity says this is monotheistic. Judaism and Islam says no, it's not. So right away, I'm going to give you a Christian answer. But you have to realize there's two pretty significant world religions that think that's bull, you know. And they have to acknowledge that. So there's nothing a Christian can say that would persuade a Muslim or a Jew to think that really this is self-consistent monotheism? Man, that's a pretty tough admission. But let's hear him out. Christianity would say that we do not have three gods, and we also don't have one person, 
it's not that we have one God in one person or three gods in three persons. We have one God in three persons. And this is the important thing. It doesn't mean that God is like a pie and he is split into three parts so that we say, oh, yeah, we got three persons. Jesus has one-third of the substance of God. The Father has a third, you know, a third, and the Holy Spirit, no, because then you really would be into polytheism, wouldn't be monotheism. But what we'd have to say is the other two persons are repeatedly present in the third person. In other words, the Father and the Son are all in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit and the Son are both in the Father. Well, see, how does that help anything? And the Why couldn't you have three gods and they're all in one another? You can see that in all kinds of places. You can see the place where Jesus will say, like in the high priestly prayer, in John 16, he'll say, my Father will come to you after I'm gone. Then he'll say, the Holy Spirit will come to you. And then he'll say, my Father and I will come to you. No problem. I mean, in his mind. I mean, you and me, we're having problems. But, you see, yeah, monotheism... It's only that we're it, You wouldn't be monotheistic if you said one God split into three persons. We don't believe that. But we really say one God existing in three persons. We don't believe also that, that uh, the, the Father is sort of superior to the Son and the, and the Holy Spirit. That wouldn't be mon monotheistic. That would be polytheistic. We say they're equal. And they're, they're uh, interdependent and they're repletively present in one another. So why does Jesus pray to the Father? I don't know if you heard that. The person in the audience asked, but why does Jesus pray to the Father? And here's his answer. Oh, but they're also distinct. <laughs> you see, or else you, wouldn't, or else you wouldn't have three persons. Well, that doesn't help, does it? If they're distinct, fine, but... Jesus is supposed to be God, right? God doesn't pray to anybody. God doesn't need to pray to anybody. So if Jesus is God, why would he be praying to somebody? How could there be anybody else for him to pray to? And the answer is, well, the Father is also God. Yeah, he's just kind of reading from the script here. You know, we say this, we say that, but you're not being given an actual interpretation of this traditional Catholic language. They would not be three personalities. You see, if you said, sometimes God puts on his father hat, and then other times he goes over here and puts on his son hat. Right, standard disclaimer of that, Sibelian that modalism. Really, then you wouldn't have three persons. You'd have one God in three disguises, but you wouldn't have one God in three persons. Or three modalities, but you wouldn't have one God in three persons. So the Christian doctrine of the Trinity is one God, three persons. However, now, Augustine... He sounds like a three-selfer. Uh, you have to remember that there have been pretty smart people who defended the Trinity against Judaism, Islam, and so forth. Uh, Augustine makes a pretty important point to the people who say, well, you're not really monotheistic. Christians would certainly admit that the, tr the Trinity is not neat. It's, it's messy. You know, it seems much simpler to say, there's only been one God, one person, that's all. But well, Augustine brings up some problems. If you don't have a Trinitarian single God, he would say you, you don't have a perfect one. Mm. And the nope. reason for that is you'd have to say, if there's one God and one person, that means he didn't have a personal relationship until he created somebody else. That means that love was not intrinsic to him. It means he must have made progress. It means he must be moving ahead, and therefore he wasn't perfect to start with. Okay, so here's a sort of argument. Love would not be intrinsic to him. I think he means to say love would not be essential to him. So if God is capable of loving, God would be less perfect than if God is actually loving. Wait a second. Why would you think that? Wouldn't he still be perfect in all aspects of his character? Wouldn't he be perfectly loving in the sense of a character trait? Wouldn't he still be perfect in power if he hadn't created anything yet? 
Similarly, wouldn't he still be perfect in love if he hadn't actually loved another yet? He seems to think that if God goes from potentially loving someone else to actually loving someone else, then God has increased in value, has become greater than before. Why would you accept that? I think that perfection, as traditionally understood, supervenes on God's essential qualities. And there's no reason to think that loving someone else has to be an essential quality of God. So it's an argument. It's not a persuasive argument. It's not anything that Augustine says. It's kind of an after-the-fact, late-in-time justification for triune God theorizing. Uh, but you see, in the Trinity, you have love intrinsic in him and personal relationship intrinsic in him from the very, 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 very beginning. I'm just skimming the surface to say, if you believe in the Trinity, this is why I'm a Christian, by the way, on this one. If you believe in the Trinity, you've got some problems with saying, well, how does the three persons jive with the unity of God, the Godhead? Mm -hmm. yeah. But if you don't have the Trinity, you've got bigger ones. What's the problem? As I understand him, I think Dr. Keller believes that the Trinity are three selves. And each of those selves would be all-powerful, all-knowing, and perfectly good. So it just looks like three gods. But he just doesn't care to lift a finger to try to solve that problem. All he's going to say is that, well, that's a problem if you're a Trinitarian, but that pales in comparison to the problem you have if you're not a Trinitarian. And that is... Drum roll, please. Bigger ones about the nature of the universe, bigger ones about his real holiness and his real aseity, which means his self-sufficiency. And so Augustine would say, yeah, you've got some problems with the Trinity, you've got bigger ones without. You're not really going to believe in a single, self-sufficient, all-powerful, all-sovereign God unless you believe in the Trinity. Now, I'm not going to, now, he wrote big books like this. I can't tell you much more than that. My Latin's a little rusty. Sovereignty? It's hard to see what sovereignty has to do with anything here. Holiness? Like God wouldn't be holy unless he were eternally loving amongst the members of himself somehow? What, how does holiness come into it? I guess that's just another reference to the love argument he just made. Again, that argument would be something like, God is supposed to be perfect in love, and he wouldn't be perfect in love if he were dependent on creation to actually be loving someone else. And so he must be multipersonal, because that way he could be actually perfect in love and loving someone else, even apart from creation. Again, if perfect in love means having perfectly loving character, there doesn't seem to be any problem there for Unitarian theologies. If you say, no, perfect in love means actually loving another, why would anybody think that's an essential divine perfection? It doesn't seem like one. Yeah, it's a great thing to be loving another. It's also a great thing to be in charge of a beautiful universe. But once God has created a beautiful universe, that doesn't make God greater. God's already as great as any being could possibly be. It's just that you could say that greatness has been manifested in a certain way. Maybe it could be manifested in many other ways, too. When God comes into a loving interpersonal relationship with a human or an angel, maybe 
His perfect lovingness is now manifested in a new way. But that doesn't mean he wasn't loving before, right? You don't have to be engaged in an act of love with another to be a loving person. Just like you don't have to be actually forgiving someone to be a forgiving person. You don't actually have to be showing mercy on someone else to be a merciful person. But God, being perfect in character, is perfectly loving, perfectly merciful, perfectly forgiving, even just by himself in eternity, apart from creation. It sure would be neat if there were some simple argument you could drag out that would show why any other conception of God is inadequate, why only a Trinity theory could properly express the idea of a perfect God. But honestly, there just isn't an argument like that. When the Trinity's podcast returns, some concluding thoughts from our three Reformed scholars. Okay, back to the video with Duncan Swain and Ortland. I think two other just quick areas we could mention. One would be Christian unity. You know, in John 17, Jesus prays that we would be one. Mm. And the pattern for that is, as the Father and I are one. It's the Trinitarian oneness that we are called into. Whoa, wait. Uh, the kind of oneness that you and I can have with God is not like the oneness that the Trinitarian says exists between the Father and the Son, that kind of oneness is sharing the same essence, however that's understood. Of course, if you want to interpret the gospel according to John in its first century context, you won't appeal to fourth century ideas to explain what's going on. Really, the oneness of Jesus and God in the gospel is a oneness of purpose. They're about the same business. And yes, we can achieve that sort of oneness with God and with his Christ. Ortland continues. And then the other would be mission. Jesus said, as the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. There's this Trinitarian impulse, momentum, that we are caught up into as we try to bring the love of Christ into the world. Those would be two other connection Absolutely. points we could mention. So, I think Dr. Ortland here is using the word Trinitarian in a very loose sense. I don't think he means having to do with a tripersonal God. I think when he says a Trinitarian movement, he's just referring to God, the Son of God, and the Spirit of God. Well, yeah, the Gospel's all about the action of God sending His Son, and then sending God's Spirit to believers after the resurrection and ascension of God's Son. Yeah, the gospel's all about those things. And notice that you don't need to mention anything about a tripersonal God, just like the New Testament doesn't. Look at the presentations of the gospel in the book of Acts. 
See if you can find the place in there where it mentions in any way, or it even just presupposes, this idea of a tripersonal God. I tell you, it's just not there at all. Luke goes through the whole book, and he's giving his own little summaries of the gospel being preached in various places. I think the high point is kind of the first gospel preached on Pentecost by Peter. That's kind of meant as a model for preaching the gospel. No, no trinity. Not even deity of Christ, not even the two natures of Christ. It's just not there. There is the one God of Israel, the one God in the universe, that's the Father. And then there's this man who's playing this special role in God's economy. That's the man Jesus, the son of Mary, and in a different way, the son of God. Okay, but now they get on to book recommendations. Um, are there any helpful resources you would recommend for learning about the Trinity, someone who wants to grow in their understanding. I'll mention one book that's been really helpful to me, Robert Letham's book, The Holy Trinity. It's a pretty thick book, but it's, uh, it covers the Bible and theology and church history, and it's a really excellent resource. Of course, Fred Sanders' book that I quoted from The Deep Things of God as well. What would you guys Sorry, I have to disagree with both um, of those. I think the new volume edited by Carl Truman and Brandon Crow. The Essential Trinity is excellent. It has chapters on each New Testament book showing how the doctrine of the Trinity is portrayed in those books. It's a great resource. And I'm going to give one that is really, really simple because I'm guessing that there will be a few people listening to this that have not really read anything at all mm -hmm. and, and maybe sort of at the lay level, entry level of this discussion, a little book by Donald McLeod called Shared Life. Mm -hmm. Is, is the best short popular introduction to the doctrine of the Trinity that I know. I am familiar with most of those book recommendations. I would just say, if you're the slightest bit worried about whether the Bible actually teaches some Trinity theory, those are not the books for you. I'll put some of my own recommendations on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. That's great. Well, we have just a minute left, so let's do one more question. Uh, and this is related to some of the controversies that have been happening. Is it possible to overuse the Trinity? Because I think sometimes you hear people talking as though the Trinity is the solution to every problem in the world. <laughs> yeah. You have economic problems. Every well, PhD student does that, though, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Your topic is the solution yeah, to everything. Yeah, exactly. Right. I know. And, and people do that with the Trinity. Yeah. It's like anything that you have, well, you just have to understand the Trinity yeah. more deeply. Is it appropriate to say there should be caution and carefulness in how we apply the Trinity to other doctrines? Yeah, certainly so. We want to let the way that the Bible presents the Trinity in relationship to other doctrines shape the way we apply it to other doctrines. And so, which oftentimes... That'd be great advice if the Bible actually issues, taught the Trinity. ...about church issues. The Trinity is related to those issues through Christology, through the person and work of Christ. What, and what so, does that mean? I think we should follow that pattern as well. And a simple way for just good Bible-reading Christians to do that is to watch in the letters of the New Testament how the Apostle Paul and others will deploy the doctrine of the Trinity for the Oof. sake of the Christian life. So wow. Ephesians 3, 14 to 19, where Paul will bow his knees to the Father and ask that by the power of the Spirit, Christ would dwell in our hearts by faith. 
so that we may be filled up to all the fullness of God. And so the believer just works over that glorious Trinitarian statement in a very simple prayer of Scripture and starts thinking, how does this teach me how that Christianity can be boiled down to the doctrine of the Trinity, that we come to the Father through the Son by the help of the Holy Spirit. Thank you both very much. Absolutely. Now, the really stunning part about that end bit there is that Duncan seems to be oblivious to the fact that that passage is wholly friendly to Unitarian theology. It's not even an apparent problem for Unitarian theology. Let's listen to his summary of it again, and then I'll read the passage for you. So Ephesians three fourteen to 19, where Paul will bow his knees to the Father Amen to that. and ask that by the power of the Spirit, mm-hmm. Christ would dwell in our hearts by faith yes. so that we may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Yes. And so the believer just works over that glorious Trinitarian statement in a very simple prayer. Right, so it's a Trinitarian statement just simply in the sense that it refers to God, the Son of God, and the Spirit of God. In that sense, it's Trinitarian. In that sense, Unitarian theology is as Trinitarian as any theology has ever been. But in the sense of dealing with a triune God, the passage neither teaches nor implies nor presupposes any theology of a triune God. Just listen to it. And this is as Unitarian-friendly as any passage in the Bible. Paul writes, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, right, that's God, from whom every family in heaven and on earth takes its name. I pray that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant that you may be strengthened in your inner being with power through his spirit, right? That's through God's spirit. And that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith as you are being rooted and grounded in love. I pray that you may have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Hmm, who's that referring to? What is that referring to? Well, we just know, and any responsible New Testament scholar will tell you this, that when it says God, unless some unusual factor is in play, it refers to the Father. So, the fullness of God It's talking about the fullness of the Father, not the fullness of the Trinity. There is no place in Scripture, strangely enough, where the word God is to be understood as referring to the three of them together. No New Testament author deploys a doctrine of a triune God for any purpose anywhere. It's just not in the New Testament. If you think there's a passage like that, I'd like to know what it is. When the Trendies podcast returns, some concluding thoughts. So yeah, I kind of wonder what the impetus for this video was. It sounds like these gentlemen heard that there are some non-Trinitarians out there on the internet 
and they just ran in front of the cameras and started talking about the Trinity. And they seem to be confusing the idea of oneness theology with biblical Unitarian theology. But what's interesting from a layperson's standpoint is that an educated layperson will encounter a position like mine, which is the New Testament is not Trinitarian in the sense that it doesn't have anything to do with theories about a tripersonal God. If by Trinitarian you just mean having to do with God, God's Son, and God's Spirit, well, sure, it's Trinitarian in that sense, but then it's also Unitarian. They just don't seem to engage with this position. They seem to be just complacently assuming that, yeah, all real Christians believe in a triune God. And there's really nothing to worry about here. In fact, those poor slobs out there that aren't Trinitarians, they're stuck with this imperfect God somehow. Right, right, yep. Well, yeah, they're missing an opportunity to engage with a substantially different type of Christian theology. They're really not as Bible-oriented as many Protestant lay people are. And this video makes them look oblivious to Bible-based concerns about, quote, the Trinity. Of course, as far as I can tell, nothing that's been said here is unique to these three or four gentlemen. They're telling you here something about the mindset of the contemporary Protestant Theological Academy. They're very complacent on this topic. They're very small-c Catholic. And they're really not very informed about minority reports in Christian tradition on these topics. Most relevantly here, the ancient dynamic Monarchians, the Socinians, the early American Congregationalist Unitarians, and in our contemporary world, people like me who call themselves Biblical Unitarians. And their attempts to establish that God must be multipersonal via some philosophical argument are honestly pretty lame. And I say this as a philosopher. It's not a problem, in my view, that they're philosophizing. It's that they're really not even trying to philosophize well. They're more authoritatively asserting than they are arguing for their claim that any unipersonal God must be imperfect. But I would suggest that you shouldn't take their word for it. If they really think that the New Testament has to be understood as involving a triune God, let's see the argument. Speaking for many biblical Unitarians, we want to have that argument. We think that the facts are on our side. If you want to see brief summaries of those scriptural facts, Check out my opening statement in my debate with Michael Brown. That's regarding the New Testament not being Trinitarian. You can check out my opening statement in my debate with Chris Date. That's a debate about the deity of Christ. And I claim that if by deity you mean being divine in the way that the one God is divine, so that you are God, then no, the New Testament doesn't teach that either. My message for these Reformed theologians is, what happened to being Protestants? I thought the central and essential doctrines were in Scripture, because Scripture is sufficient to teach us what we need to know. All right then, well, how do you get from a Scripture in which the one true God is the Father, and Jesus is explicitly a man, and then there's God's Spirit, which doesn't have a proper name, and which is never portrayed as an object of worship. Indeed, the Trinity, per se, is never an object of worship. How do you get from that New Testament to the Trinity of later Catholic Protestant orthodoxy? That's the question I think Protestants have to answer.
This week's thinking music has been the track Pillow Tree Version 2 by Uncle Bibby. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode where you can listen to or download that entire track. If you love the Trinity's podcast, please share this episode on social media like Twitter or Facebook. And help other people to find the podcast by giving us an honest rating and review in the iTunes store for your country. You can also support the Trinity's podcast by giving a certain donation per episode. If you're interested in that, please visit patreon.com slash trinities. Finally, let us know what you think. Give us a comment on the blog post for this episode. Or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash trinities. The Trinity's Podcast is supported by and made for thinking believers like you. Thanks for your support, prayers, and encouragement. listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.